Recording clips for the preview spotlight episodes is easy, and we've got an open submission policy for these episodes. Please send in clips to support the comics you love as often as you can. If you'd like to get email reminders for the preview spotlight episodes, you can join the emailing list on the main page of the comicbookpage.com website. The deadline is typically the second Saturday of the month at 9 a.m. Check the main page of the website for more information and the exact deadline for the next preview spotlight. In this back issue spotlight, I'm joined by James, and we're going to be continuing our discussion of Avengers Forever, the original series from 1998, covering issues 7 through 12 this episode. James, how are you doing tonight? I'm great. How are you doing, John? I am doing well. Now, we had a little bit, you know, a week or two break between the first half of this and the second half of this. Yes. And this is, like I said, from the turn of the century. Yes, it is. (laughs) And maybe it was just me, but there were a couple of these issues that took a little while to get through. Oh my gosh, it was so verbose and kind of dense. Really dense. Dense is the way I'd put it. Action, well, not action-packed. Let me put it, because uh, it's... Uh, there were a couple of these that were were story-filled. How about that? Yeah, I like when I got on issue eight, I was like, it, it, it's almost an entire issue where it's an exposition dump with the amount of material you get in there. Eight and nine are both ones that I think some readers are going to love and some are going to despise. Yeah, I was in the despise category. <laughs> oh, man, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. I didn't hate it. But I remember when I first read this story a long time ago that I would read it and I would just be like, man, this is just a lot going on. This is a lot of stuff. It, 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 not a lot of action. You know, Not a lot of engagement type stuff. Well, there are some where some comics where it feels like you need to have a PhD in their continuity to understand it. Yeah. This is one where it was clear Busick has that PhD when he was writing it. Yes. Yes, he did. I remember it was funny because they were going through the, you know, just going on and on about, you know, vision, how he was created Mm -hmm. and this and that, trying to explain the original Human Torch. And Hawkeye said, I got a migraine. (laughs) And I'm just like, me too, Hawkeye. Me too. (laughs) Well, it's funny because in issue seven, we get a little bit of, you know, vision both being and not being the original Human Torch. And at that point, I'm thinking, well, this is the joys of long-term continuity. Yes. And specifically, writers with different opinions about that continuity and turning those opinions into, quote-unquote, facts. Yeah, exactly. And it just, I mean, imagine if you could get enter this narrative world and confront these characters with the chaos of their continuity, and that's more or less what happens a few issues later in this series. Yeah, because there was there was discussion over this. Is the vision created from the original Human Torch? How does that work? And so this kind of explained it in the way that he thinks it's meant to be, and it becomes canon uh, to this point. As much as anything can become canon, because it was fascinating with the the Vision Human Torch thing in particular, where they basically, I think, explain, I forget if it was this issue or maybe the next, where Immortus basically used his time powers to make two conflicting things simultaneously true in the timeline. Yeah, that was so <laughs> confusing, but yes, he did. Now, I don't remember exactly when Mark Wade invented the concept of hypertime over at DC, but it does essentially the same thing. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, basically, it's in continuity. Both things have happened, but it, it, it's weird how it happens because it puts it to rest, and we get ultimately what I, I feel like he wanted the origin of the human, or not the human torch, but of the vision to be. Well, I think some of it was Kurt Busiek using this series to 
explore, you know, all the time shenanigans the Avengers have been up to over the years. Yeah. To try to make sense of some of that. And to kind of address, and I'm going to use the term address versus fix, conflicting things from from past stories. Yeah, it, it seemed like he did some cleanup work here versus like tossing stuff aside, which has happened in DC a few times. He's like, I'm going to explain it and make it make sense. Mm-hmm. You know, and it was written in a way, Busick is a very, very intelligent guy, if, where he pieced it all together and it does make sense. I mean, your, your, your head's going through gymnastics, but it, it, it's definitely a mental exercise to get this stuff done. Well, it was funny because in the seventh issue, we get a couple of plot points that were a little interesting. Yep. Some were inevitable. Yellow Jacket offering to, to betray the Avengers. Yeah. <laughs> that was going to happen. Hawkeye finding the, first off, getting reverted to his Goliath powers by Tempest or Tempo, whatever the guy's name was. It's like, well, I'm going to de-age you a little bit. And he's like, oh, well, that means I get the growth powers. Boom. And he grows. It's like, okay, that was just funny. Yeah. But then Hawkeye finds the Synchro Staff, and he does this, like, off-panel, so when he announces he's done, and I'm like, well, that's convenient. (laughs) And I didn't realize how convenient, because it basically facilitates the entire next issue, which was heavy on exposition. Oh, yeah. Because that Synchro Staff turned out not to be a staff, but actually a Space Phantom. And then we get the history of the Space Phantoms, him telling the tale of all the different parts of continuity that kind of don't make sense, and it's like, oh, you thought this was easy. Well, we had to spin these lies, let you see through a few of them to give the others a ring of truth, and explain this by making you think that. And the the intricacy of that was just insane. It was insane. And, and, you know, I'm trying to think back, you know, in the 90s, you know, around this time, how old I was and stuff. And it was written well, and what he did, I appreciate what he did here. Mm-hmm. But, you know, can you imagine being like, you know, a 12-year-old kid picking this up? Be like, what the heck is this? I think it would be very confusing and very like, this is definitely skewed to older readers who've been reading for years and years, the continuity and trying to explain some of that stuff in, I would say, not reader-friendly way. I think it really comes down to the personality of the reader. Yeah, and I would agree. I think it may actually work better for younger readers who tend to have a little bit more, hey, this is cool, and accepting of anything. Yeah, I can see that, versus me being the jaded older reader and going, eh, like you said, this happened off panel, how convenient, you know? Just comes with age, and having read so many stories. Yeah, some of it of, you know, you didn't show me this, so that was convenient, is one thing. There are other parts where taking so many conflicting stories and aspects of Kang, Amortis, Ramatut, the Vision, the the original Human Torch, all of these things, and weaving a coherent and but certainly not simplistic narrative out of all of that. Yeah, if this was an impressive work by him. Although I would say it's not the type of thing that you know I wax fond of when I read it. I appreciate it and I like that I read it and I it makes sense. But it's not like a go to story. And and sometimes people reference this as like a best Avenger story. And I would say. As far as writing well, you know, good art and everything like that, yeah, it's all there. But it's it's dense. It's a little bit confusing at points. You have to be like, okay, okay, this is going on here, this is going on here. And if you would have spread this out over months, I would have been completely lost. Just me. I can see that. For me, at this point, I'd been reading The Avengers for at least, I'm going to say, about 15 years. And knew enough of their history, but not all of it. So some of the stuff they were revealing was, was new to me at the time. Yeah. And some of it, particularly issues eight, where we get just the 
a huge info dump from the Space Phantom and a lot about Vision and Scarlet Witch and their kids and all this stuff. It was nice having those spaced out, you know, a month at a time because it gave you a little time to kind of digest that and recover from it before nine, where we get like Kang's entire timelines and backstories and like all of it. Yeah, I guess, you know, I can see that point because it doesn't really require one to read the other. And yeah, having that space in there gives you a little bit of a break. Because if all comics were written this way, I could probably only read 10 or 15 comics a month. <laughs> I, I couldn't read the 50 that I remember eating, you know, I, or the 60, mm-hmm. however many it is. Because that would just be a big time suck because you're having to sit there, focus, think, hash out, okay, this is what's going on here. Okay, cool, cool. But it, it, there's a, just a lot going on. It takes a while to read it. Now, I would put this up as one of, you know, the all-time great Avengers stories. Maybe not the best, but certainly in the running. Yeah, I, and I see why people love it. And I'm the outlier. I really am because Avengers Forever is perennially picked as like one of the better stories. And for me, it's just like, I, I like it, but it's just not how I'm wired. You know, that just me, how my Absolutely. And it's not for everybody. And yeah. I think particularly issues eight and nine with the, I mean, it's funny because it's, it's a massive info dump, but they're illustrated, they're showing us the things that are happening as it's being narrated to us. So it's not just talking heads by any stretch. Oh, no, no. I, I would say I like nine, the, the background on Kang a little bit more because he went back so far and I hadn't read any of that stuff. So that was something that I did appreciate. And I, I thought it was hilarious how Ravona betrays young Kang and goes after Immortus older Kang. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're like, should you like the younger, more good looking one? Or you want, you want the 50 or 60 year old? <laughs> I don't know the age difference, but it was just hilarious. <laughs> Losing out in a love triangle to yourself or whatever is just kind of weird. I know, it's weird. And I'm just like, I don't know. I, I would have thought they would. she would have liked the younger, maybe. Who knows? Who knows? You remember the Kang miniseries they did two, three years back, right? Yeah. Because that covered a lot of Kang's history and such. I like that a lot. I did like that Kang miniseries. This covered very similar ground, except I would say probably like six times as much in the single issue. Yeah, which is insane. And that gives you an idea of how condensed, how dense this material is. Yeah. Because we, that miniseries, I would say it flowed and it read a lot quicker and you got less background than you did in this one issue, which I'm like sitting there scratching my head at some point. I'm like, oh, okay, this happened here. This happened here. Okay. Okay. You really get it just so much inf- information. It's, it almost feels a little bit overwhelming. Oh yeah, definitely. I, I felt that this time reading it through. And part of it was reading these six issues back to back to back and such. Yeah, that, it was a lot. <laughs> and some of it was, I mean, there is just, compared to today's standards, so much meat on the bone here. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I try to think of music, you know, the amount of work, thinking this out, mapping it out, writing it, coming up with his arguments, making it make sense. The amount of time that he put into this versus the average writer who takes a story thread and let's stretch this out over five issues. This this thing and and that's where you get that almost feeling of no momentum with current stories. Whereas this is man, ooh. <laughs> you take almost any one issue of this and it feels like the equivalent of an arc in some other stories. Yeah, every issue feels like an arc, and so I feel like we read three years worth of comics and we read six issues. Well, we we read a few lifetimes worth of characters arcs. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we get the entire timeline, it feels like, from stem to stern on Vision, 
certainly of Kang, Amortis, Ramatut, etc., etc., all of his different guises. And there was this Avenger story going on. Yeah, exactly. And then it kind of changes speed. And I felt like where the story for me was more fun was when we get into 10, 11, 12, mm-hmm. where you get more of like the cheesy action, you know, and I wouldn't even say it's cheesy. It's still a very full comic and you're reading a lot, but you get like the Avengers fighting the future Avengers <laughs> and you get the explanation of, you know, why the Time Masters are trying to reason with Immortus and what humanity's doing and should we let the humans exist? Should we just... It's just that to me felt like fun while still being a dense amount of material. Yeah, there was a lot going on there. And I enjoyed how we got a kind of a reminder of, oh, yeah, there was that Rick Jones descendant and all of his army of Avengers stuff. Yeah. We, we get reminded of that. I forget exactly which issue that we, we get some of that, but it was, it was definitely needed when we got it. And then getting the. Is is Kang kind of the good guy here? Is Immortus kind of the good guy? Are they both? Are they not? Are they the same guy? Are they not? Kind of a twist and some stuff there. I like that feeling. <laughs> well, and in issue 10, when it's basically revealed, Immortus is pretty much responsible for a ton of the alien invasions of Earth. Just by whispering the right thing in the right ears across the galaxy and stuff, it's like, oh, those humans, they're going to be problems for you. You might want to do something about it. Or, yeah, I hear they think they're the big thing or whatever. You know, whatever it took to get that alien race ticked off enough to go invade. Yeah. Or paranoid enough to go invade, or whatever it may be. I thought that was just a ton of fun. It was. Again, it's not one where I felt I needed to know the ins and outs of every alien invasion of the Marvel Earth, but having all of those things being referenced, it gave the world a sense of cohesiveness, reality, verisimilitude, or whatever, that you cannot get without a rich history and continuity. Exactly. Busick did his homework. He, he, he's been there for a lot of the history and what he wasn't there for. He's read and he, he knows. And he, he felt like he even knew the arguments that the, the really continuity-heavy comic readers were debating and discussing. He, he was in on those forums or those talks, and this is his tip of the cap to them. Well, I think there's a generation of writers, or at least a group in that generation, Busick, Wade, uh, Tom Brevoort, who's an editor, but still, I think, fits in this group. Yeah. That came up as fans. Yeah. Got into the business, became big-name creators and such. And there are others from, you know, slightly before, a little after and stuff, you know, Roy Thomas, uh, Paul Levitz, Mark Grunewald. And they, were, they got into comics for the love of comics. And it really, it shows in a way that you just don't get otherwise, because you've got just a wealth of knowledge, experience, and respect and passion for the history of these characters, that you can build on it, you can flip it around where it needs to be, you can straighten it out where it needs to be, or you gloss over where you need to. Yeah, definitely. I agree with you. There, there are those writers who were the super fans who I think love the material as much as anyone out there, mm-hmm. and, and you can feel it in their writing, and you can see it based on their respect of the continuity. So that, that they, they really do respect it because there's a lot of people that are writing comics that I would argue maybe are fans of the movies or maybe fans of some comics, but they're not real comic book fans. And it, it, you can tell. Yeah. And th- there's been one that I, who I know of, a good, good writer that you and I both like, and he never read comics until he became a comic writer. 
and he, he does a very good job at it. And that's Matt Hawkins. He was a writer. He liked to write stuff, and he was into other things. But he came up and had friends. Image came into it, and he had never written comics before, and it just has knocked it out of the park. He's just a very good writer. But he never wrote the the, the continuity heavy Marvel and DC either. I, I was just going to point that out. <laughs> he made the wise decision, yes, <laughs> to go creator owned, do his own thing with his own characters. Because I've seen some people that are entertaining writers, but when they would take over something like the Avengers. The personalities the characters had before just kind of got jettisoned. Yeah. It's like, I think it'd be cool if. And it's one thing to say, wouldn't it be cool if, when it's based on the history and backstory of these characters, it's another when it's used to supplant the backstory and history of the characters. I agree. I agree. I'm happy that we read this. I'm happy that I read most of Mark Wade's stuff. (laughs) (laughs) I'm happy that I read most of Busick's stuff. You know, on the flip side, you have a guy like, not to pick on people, but, you know, like, the the antithesis of this type of stuff is Tom King. Tom King, he goes and he messes up and doesn't respect the continuity or the character that came before and is going to write a cool story and continuity be damned. That's that's his approach. Let's let's use Jason Aaron as an example. Jason Aaron too, yeah. <laughs> because he's doing a for, Avengers Forever right now. Yes, he is. And so many of the issues are, it's like, okay, here's the Ant-Man issue or the Captain America issue or the Captain Marvel issue or what have you. And it's, let's go see what kind of, you know, multiversal variants there are of this. Because wouldn't it be cool if uh, Tony Stark became Ant-Man instead of Iron Man? Exactly. It's so annoying. (laughs) And it has zero to do with the history of the Avengers. Yeah. It it feels almost like Spider-Verse, but with different characters. And let me see what kind of cool things I can do with them. And that's what turns me off. And I think that's what turned you off, too. Well, some of it was that. And some of it is... The whole concept of the Avengers BC from like a million BC or whatever. Yeah, it's an insane amount of time, but back to to, to be you know it's it's ludicrous. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and to have that have any kind of connection to the current Avengers, just I I don't buy it. I remember when they first came out with that, I was like, wow, this is kind of cool. This will be neat, and that that passed very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, okay, it's not cool anymore. One thing that I did. Notice in here, I, I, I wouldn't say notice, but you remember how we're, we were seeing a very different cap through this. He wasn't yes. really the the vocal leader or the you know follow my I'm leading the charge and all that. I felt like he started to tweak Cap a little bit at the end of issue ten, where Cap became a little bit more vocal and a little more take charge. And that was when you know they were talking about the humans fail forty two percent of the time, and mm-hmm. you know with suppression. And he Cap gets livid at that point. He's like, you're going to judge us based on what we might do, not what we've actually done. And he starts becoming very, I almost like a little bit aggressive at that point. And I was like, that's the Cap that we're going to be seeing in the future. The guy, I'm not saying yeah. that he's overly aggressive, but a take charge and I'm not going to discuss with my friends over here. I'm coming at you. <laughs> well, they never say die. Exactly. And I, I thought that was kind of cool because we saw that bubble up right there. And that might have been some inspiration for a future Cap writer. And I don't know. Or an explanation for how Cap kind of made that turn way back in the day. Exactly. So that was a cool thing. I just happened to notice that because we were talking about how Cap was so different. I noticed that. And I was like, huh, that's interesting. He, he changed him a little bit there in that, that setting. I thought that was interesting. And it really, I think the series landed the ending when we get the explanation of why these Avengers from these points in time. Yes, that did. It did he did land the ending with that. Now, 
on issue 10, the splash at the end where we get yeah. Rick Jones coming in with Kang and uh, the Supreme Intelligence. Yeah. I cannot believe it is accidental, the resemblance <laughs> of that bike to the super cycle of the forever people. <laughs> that was that was hilarious. I was looking at that. I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> I mean, down to the point that the background of this is basically the the Kirby dot kind of energy effect all over the place. Yeah, that was definitely reminiscent. I was like, this is this is funny. <laughs> I thought that was a ton of fun. It was. And they had a huge splash page. Was that issue 12 or 11 where they had the splash, splash page of all the Avengers? I can't remember it which. It would have been 12. But go, to the, go to the title splash on 11 for a minute. Yeah, okay, on 11. I'm there. Okay. This is one where I really, you know, I think it's one of the better examples, although I think it's true throughout the series, that the captions on this page are basically recapping the key parts of why are we here, what's going on, the way that these these title splashes uh, have the captions recap either the, the premise of the series or recent issue events or both, to where it's like, you know, if you missed the last one, it's not that big of a deal. We're going to get you in the story here real quick. Yeah. And I don't know where this went away because it feels like comics used to have this type of stuff. Yeah. This to me is accessibility. The previously on page is the crutch to get around being able to do this. Yeah. Marvel went to the previously on, so they got rid of the stuff. DC just got rid of this stuff and doesn't have the previously on, which is why I feel lost for about five or six pages. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh, yeah, now I remember what's going on. But this was the thing that I feel like as an aged reader or as a new reader, we need because uh, I'm I'm older, you know. I can't remember, you know. My brain only holds so much material. I need that little jog. Okay, it's been a month. Okay, yeah, this is where we were. Cool. But if they, don't, so many writers don't do this, and I don't know why editors don't encourage writers to do this or hire some some guy, you know, or girl, uh, intern to put some little caption boxes in there, something. I think it's actually the opposite problem. I think it got to the point where editors discouraged it. Why? trades. Oh, the trades killed this. If you're going through in a trade every 20, 25 pages, you get a recap of what you just read. It feels redundant. It does. And which brings forth the question then, if they're writing this material in the single floppies and making it for the trade and making it difficult for me, am I supposed to just toss these aside and wait for the trade. Is that what they're encouraging? It seems like it is. It very much is what they're encouraging. I don't think it's what they should be encouraging. No, I think it actually hurts the medium. Oh, yeah. And I think that's also what happened to footnotes. Yeah. Because it's a little odd to be saying it happened in issue 12 or 14 or 3 or whatever when somebody's collecting volumes 1 through 8 of a, a series of trade paperbacks and they're, well, where was 3 or whatever? Yeah. Ah. Uh... That's that's unfortunate, honestly. Now that we look at that, that's really unfortunate to me because I feel like that's the thing that when I was reading comics, I don't remember getting as confused as I get today. And I, some of that is age-related. Not that I'm that old, but I think some of it was these little helpful hints and reminders that the writer gave to me and the editor gave to me, and now nobody's helping me. They're just like, figure it out or, or buy this other variant of the material. Well, it seemed like when I was growing up, Every year when they would do the JLA-JSA team up over in, at DC, at least a page would be devoted to the concept of what is a parallel world. Yeah. And often you'd get the same sort of, okay, the image with the two Earths, you'd get the Barry Allen flash, the Jay Garrick flash, a couple of go-to sort of things. Different art every time, but the same basic thing. 
Now, I, I've got sitting over here the Crisis on Multiple Earths trade paperback, so at some point I should flip through and see, did they really do that every year when they did this, or is it just my imagination? Yeah. Pretty sure they did it every time. But that was back when a year between arcs like that felt like a really long time, whereas we just finished an arc that took a year to tell. Yeah, yeah. So, again, just such a different point in time of storytelling. And it makes sense why, if you look at it, readers have gone to trades, readers have gone to digital. I mean, there's other things, but that that this is a thing that people can point to, and this is why I do choose not to do this ritual of going through the single issues. It makes sense. Mm-hmm. Hey, by the way, if you go to the very end of this page, I don't know what you call it, the, the last page of issue 11. I was wondering if you were going to ask about this. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah I, I, do you have a key for this? No. <laughs> What did you think of this splash page? And I was like, this is not every Avenger ever. Not even like I I'm not an expert on this stuff and I can see missing Avengers, but I thought that was hilarious. It's not every Avenger ever. It shows this was not George Perez on art. Yeah, I was like, this is Perez would be shaking his head if he saw this. Uh, That's not good. (laughs) And this is one where because they're pulling literally, as they say, every Avenger who is, was or ever will be from all the timelines that didn't go sour. So all where they're still heroic. Yeah. I mean, I recognize most of these characters. I'd need to give a little thought to probably two or three of them, but it's a little bit of a cheating kind of a thing since it's from across the multiverse, even those we've never seen as Avengers. Yeah. And and they could say, oh, well, we left out Spider-Man because he was on a timeline that would have gone sour. Well, uh, <laughs> even not those that they left out, but those they included, it's like, well, why and which version of this character is this really from? I mean, we get the the Captain America from the Earth X stuff that Alex Ross did. Yep. We've got the American Dream, I think, from the MC2 universe timeline. So you could you could guess where these characters are from, but they never spend enough time with any of these characters for us to really know for sure who they are. Exactly. And I was thinking Perez was so needed for this last page, and he he would have done a two-page splash and probably had 300 characters on there. Go go two pages back when we get a character kind of brought into the story, the one wearing the chicken feet. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm back. The chicken feet, I like that. (laughs) Okay, that Serapi or whatever he's wearing? Yeah. Is that Superman's cape? Oh my gosh, until you said that, I didn't notice. It is! Yeah, I thought that was kind of funny. Oh my god, he's wearing Superman's cape? it could be Wonder Woman's little gauntlets on her arm. <laughs> it's not. It's not. <laughs> but it could be. It could be. I'm like, oh my gosh, that is Superman. And why does he have chicken feet? <laughs> I'm trying to think if those are the Falcon's original boots. Could be, honestly. I mean, so. I, I can't remember, but that is hilarious. You, you said the Superman thing. I just noticed the red thing and see some yellow and I just breezed right past it. But that is yeah. hilarious. Yeah. Superman's cape. <laughs> I mean, there's some fun little Easter eggs in here, but nothing that has a, almost enough detail to it or enough time spent on it. I mean, it was more in the, the 12th issue where we've got all the Avengers who ever was or will be that are good fighting all those that ever were or will be that are bad. Yeah, that was some nice splash pages and some fighting. It was oh, pretty yeah. cool. I mean, yeah. seeing the Texas Twister, a few other, you know, really obscure characters, uh, just fun. I mean, we get yeah. even uh, Starbrand in there. Yeah, this was more the area, and I'm not saying that the material is better, it just moved at a pace, and there's more action where it, I felt more engaged with the story. So like those last three issues, I enjoyed way more than the first three that we read this time. 
Well, yeah, I, I think the the storytelling style was so different because this is more action based and let's wrap up the plot. Whereas those first three of this back half of the series, much more continuity heavy, plot heavy, and well, we're seeing a lot of things as they had happened in the past or whatever. Literally, it's a bunch of people standing around talking. Yeah, exactly. It it felt like Busick's, I don't want to say attempt, that he did it. Instead of like Crisis on Infinite Earths, where they wipe out continuity and try to restart it, and here here's the pieces we're going to use from going forward, let's explain some things, and let's get everyone on the same page. Mm-hmm. And it's it, just a different approach. And, and honestly, I mean, Crisis on Infinite Earths is amazing, but I feel like this is a better approach because you're not going to create confusion in the future. Oh, I don't know about that. I think... What happened in issues seven, eight, and nine here really throws a number of things into question. If if you've got conflicting things being true at the same time, and oh, those yeah, that with the some <laughs> stuff like that, Human Torch stuff, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I love the whole series. It's a ton of fun, but I freely admit it's not for everybody. If, if continuity drives you up the wall, avoid this. Yeah, and that's I don't want to say that's who I am because I do appreciate continuity. I do like it, but at the same time. It's not my go-to cup of Joe for having a good time. If I'm going to go back and read a good comic, this is not something that I'm going to go to. I'm going to go towards like World War Hulk or Planet Hulk or something like that. I'm going to mm-hmm. go to something a little more action-oriented, a little more, for me, enjoyable. And that, that's just who I am. Call me shallow. I don't know. <laughs> no, different things for different people. There's nothing right or wrong about that. But it's a matter of finding the stories that are right for you and understanding what stories are right for you and why. Yeah, yeah, I I agree because I love the Avengers. I think one thing we could look at doing in the future, but it's way too big and we have to narrow it down, is I thought Hickman wrote very confusing at the very beginning of his Avengers. Mm-hmm. But I, when I look at the pe- the work overall, Hickman did an amazing job with the Avengers. He did, but there's also parts of his run that run very much afoul of this. Yes, it really does. <laughs> Avengers world and in all of the spacefaring aspect yeah. was very much what was trying to be prevented here. Yeah, literally the opposite. And they're so different. And yet when I'm going for enjoyment, I go more towards, I, I go more that route, just as enjoyable. Mm-hmm. It, it's not as heavy on the exposition. It reads a little easier. It, well, when I say it reads a little bit easier, I remember at the beginning, the first 12 issues, I was like, what's going on here? This is a little bit difficult. But then it started making sense. Yeah, and there's definitely a lot of words on the page in this series. It really is, yeah. And sometimes a lot packed into some of the images, even. Yeah, and this, this is not an I hate it type thing for me. It's I like it. It's not my favorite, but I like I do like it. I really like it for what it is. And I, I like Busick, and mm-hmm. I love Pacheco. Where I, He's going to be missed, his art. And th- this isn't the best Pacheco art. No. This just reminds us of him, and we lost him just recently. It would have been nice to have seen... The Pacheco of maybe 10 years later do this? Yeah, because he really did improve. Oh, he did a great job on the storytelling here. The line work, some places could have been a little better. It wasn't bad, but it wasn't up to his eventual peak and stuff. I agree. But I think that's hopefully true of most artists, that whatever they do at one point in time seems inferior to what they do a few years or a decade later. Yeah, it's very true. Most artists do improve unless something health-wise happens, you know, and, and that does happen. Or they decide to make a radical change in their style like Keith Diffin did on Legion. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm not looking forward to when I get to that part in the Legion spotlights where it's like, oh, man, I'm loving the Keith, Keith Giffen art, and 
there will be one issue where it's it's great at the beginning and it's a what happened midway through. <laughs> it's like he woke up one morning and said, you know, I'm going to go with this extreme art style that, that makes Jack Kirby look photorealistic. That's funny. <laughs> yeah, not good. So there are a couple of things here. I don't know if they ever really pick up on like whatever happened to Libra and stuff like that. I don't know if they pick it up on it somewhere else or whatnot, but yeah, that that is kind of left there. And then we leave off on a note with, with Rick Jones and the, the younger Captain Marvel that launched into its own series coming out of this. Yeah, it was good to read Rick Jones because I've been reading him in some old Hulk stuff and I've read him here because we don't, we don't really see a lot of Rick Jones currently, modern comics. Have you ever, if you haven't picked up the Captain Marvel series that launched out of this, I'm thinking it was Peter David who wrote it. Yeah. I'm picking that up, and I did not read it. I'm picking it up. I think there's an omnibus coming out mm-hmm. with Captain Marvel and Peter David stuff in there, and I'm picking that up because yeah. I, I do definitely want to read it. Definitely worth reading. It's some fun stuff. Yeah, I've heard good things about it, and Peter David's a guy who, you know, he, he's another one my heart goes out to because he's had all kinds of health problems, and he's having health problems now. And one day he won't be with us, and I'm going to miss him because I really do enjoy his writing. Yeah. Yeah, he, he, he's a great guy. I mean, there have been some things he's done here and there that didn't really click with me and whatnot. The Blaster special at DC, for one. Yeah. But you look at his run on Young Justice, Aquaman, Hulk. I'm trying to think some of the other ones he's had. Just, I mean, some of the stuff he did over in the 2099 stuff with, I guess it was Spider-Man 2099 he did over there. He's had just so many really archetypal, pivotal runs of various characters. And that's not even counting... All the work he's done over in like the Star Trek novels or the Star Trek comics, even he did a, a brilliant run over at DC for the original series for quite some time. So yeah, I, I'll I'll tell you what I was such a big fan of Peter David and his Hulk writing when he did the Hulk like five omnibus worth of material. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he, he wrote a ton of books for for the Hulk. That when he left Marvel and he did go to Aquaman, I read Aquaman for like I can't remember like twelve issues or maybe more than that. And I was enjoying it, but then I got out of comics after a while. But he did get me to read DC for a while, and I did think Aquaman was kind of cool. Well, I think what's most impressive about Peter David Drone and the Hulk is that was some of his first writing stuff. Yeah, which is just insane, because it was done so well. And you had told us that he'd listen to the editors and listen to the feedback from the writers and change his writing style. Well, technically what he did is he, he would, had been in the sales office. Ah, that's what it was, the sales office, yeah. So he knew when it wasn't selling well, because either he was still looking at it or at least had friends still in the office. And it's like, oh, that's not working. Let's pivot and find something that does. That's almost, that should be material that they, hey, your book's sliding, man. You might want to switch it up. (laughs) Yeah. It would help. Well, (laughs) it's easy to do that when you're telling stuff that is more issue by issue. Not to say done in one, but if you're telling a 15-part arc, and you're stuck on that trajectory for 15 issues or, you know, better part of over a year. You can't change. It's hard to pivot. Yeah. And that's what most of the writers are doing. They're doing a minimum six issues, and a lot of them are doing 12-issue arcs. And so... Well, I mean, look at this. If you pick seven Avengers at the beginning, you got to land the ending and stuff. You you can't just pivot halfway through and say, whoops, that was the wrong group. Let me try this group. Nope. Ain't going to work. Whereas you look at the current uh, Avengers Forever... Was there anything in the first issue that really telegraphed what had to be in issues seven, eight, and nine? Yeah, not so, really. Different storytelling yeah. style. Yeah. So this was a good read, though, and I'm glad we did it. Yeah, I, I thought it was a ton of fun. I don't think I've reread it since it first came out. 
Yeah, this was my second read through. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't remember when I read it the first time. But yeah, second read through and I had forgotten everything. <laughs> yeah, no, I'd, I'd forgotten tons of it, too. And I, I just thought this was, was great. Again, getting the landing the ending on why these Avengers from these points in time, getting other Avengers kind of guest starring on both the good and the bad side of the fence and whatnot. It's definitely a series that is, I was going to say an easy read. It's not an easy read. It's an enjoyable read. But there are going to be some, some things where it takes a little time to get through. But I think it's worth it. And if you love the big picture continuity at Marvel and you haven't read this, you should. Yeah, you're missing out. If you're a continuity buff, you got to read this. Yeah, yeah. If you're an Avengers buff, even if you despise continuity, there'll be a few issues that are a little tough, admittedly, but it's still worth doing. Yeah, I agree. Anything else? No, that does it for me. Cool. The show notes and form for this podcast can be found at www.comicbookpage.com under the podcast and forum sections of the website. Please email us at theguys at comicbookpage.com and let us know what you think of what was discussed in this episode. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the Back Issue Spotlight on the Comic Book Page Podcast. My name is John Mann. In this episode, we'll be having a spoiler-filled discussion about an older comic book storyline. 